Just a quick note before today's show. While we have transformed our entire platform to respond to the ongoing crisis, increasing our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, we cannot continue without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time. Nandar Minswe. Uh, she has been involved in the massive diaspora fundraising effort from the get-go, from the very first moments when the coup happened. So we're going to learn a bit about what the diaspora has, has been doing to try to fundraise and support the democracy movement through her role and her activities. So Nandar, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Sure. Thank you. Mm. So I understand that from the earliest days of the coup, uh, when the military took over in February 1st, 2021, that through your connection with Dr. Zawe So, who's also a minister of the NUG, you were involved in starting to support different fundraising efforts. So can you take us back to those early days and where your fundraising and networking activity started following the coup? Sure. Um, so what happened was, you know, we were, um, we means my husband and myself, we were uh, both um, medical, University of Medicine one graduates. So whenever we go back to Burma, we kind of go visit the school and get in touch with the um, teachers. So that was always so happened to be the, the rector back then uh, in 2019. And we got connected. He was having a plan to have a global educational uh, activity for the postgraduate students. So that's how we were in touch with him. We were never his students. He was not a teacher to us per se, but he was the uh, the rector at that time. And we are the you know medical people out here. So we got connected and we were working with him uh, doing those educational stuff. So when this 2021 February 1st happened, you know, we were feeling like, okay, what can we do to help Burma? Um, and so within a week, I think it was on the 6th of February to be um, exact, that's when Dr. always sent us a, um, like a, a worldwide Zoom meeting for all the uh, educational people who had been involved with him. Our set network was already there. So we had a Zoom meeting and he was explaining about how the um, civil disobedience movement, movement has started and almost all healthcare employees had walked out 
So he was telling how, you know, they're still good for February. They can survive. They may be able to survive the whole month of March. But after that, you know, being salaried, they are going to start getting into trouble. So we should be thinking about or getting ready to help them. So that's when we started rounding up. When I started rounding up, I was reaching out only to healthcare people, you know, so uh, physician to physician, nurses, dentists, um, all the people that I know in my reach. So we started uh, rounding up, collecting money, and uh, started sending a fire. Um, at, back, back at, at that time, you know, we were still able to send um, through the, uh, how should I put it, uh, uh, illegal route, right? Like, so we are giving money here, and the people over there are giving out jets. And so we were trying to send those money to some collective effort. So that has evolved pretty quickly into when the CRPH is formed, they have formed a little um, a network organization of almost all department, all uh, sector, CDMs, so that the CDM network started happening and the CDMers are um, sending their data information and the fund collected had been distributed to different uh, people who are more in need. So basically, you know, even in healthcare sector, the doctors and nurses are not the ones to get a penny at all in the beginning. It's only the uh, supportive health staff, like, uh, how should I put it, people who are in the periphery, right? So, but they are from the healthcare department, but they are at the periphery. So the doctors, nurses who can make a living out of their own profession anywhere, they are not being supported at all. So, you know, they teared up who needs more, who um, uh, are in a role who of essential role and who started earlier. So they have their own criteria and started doing that. After the CRPH comes NUG formation, and when NUG formed, um, CRPH also made a, um, they call it an OFP, Official Fundraising Program, and that was in by the uh, month of April. April of 2021, that OFP program started, and they were um, registering, right, like who are the legitimate people who are uh, trustworthy enough to raise funds and be able to um, send money back home. So we started registering there and we become the OFB fundraisers. So since then, we maintain that status and until today, we're doing uh, multiple projects under um, CRBH OFB as well. So that's one part. Um, but, you know, as the revolution evolved, our roles also evolved. We were started with the CDM supporters, then we become the NUG supporters. Then later, we will have to here and there support the local PDFs and um, uh, this and that organizations. Then later, it comes the NUG bonds. So we also um, took the role of NUG bond agents. We sell the bonds. Pretty much we collect money from any um, resources, any reason we can get. And we have been um, sending to where we were instructed to do so. So after the NUG bond comes the EOD, um, end of dictatorship, right? So that's the share of selling, uh, selling um, the, um, how should I put it, the properties um, or the uh, plots, like the land plots. So those are, I mean, not they're not selling the whole land plots. It's about only the 30% of the payment had to be paid uh, with uh, 
installments. So those are also involved. And now the newest uh, thing happening right now is called the NUG Pay. So it's like a Bitcoin. It's like a cryptocurrency, but that is used between the NUG Pay um, wallet holder to wallet holder. So that is also uh, the latest thing happening. And I mean, we've been moving from one to another. We've been wearing different hats. But the major thing is we're still supporting the revolution to keep going. Mm, thank you for that. That's really fascinating. It's really incredible to hear how this all got kicked off. And it also just underscores the role and the importance of the those from the medical profession. We we know that with the white coat strike and the early CDM was really uh, it was really people in the medical field that were kicking it off. <clears throat> That's also why they've received such uh, such undue violence from the military because of their role in starting those strikes. But hearing from you, a physician who's in America and has connections to the medical there in Myanmar, it really just underscores the tremendous role that people in the medical field were playing in, in starting this democratic revolution. So uh, taking going back to the start uh, of when you connected with Dr. Zawiso and when you started your work of figuring out how to fundraise and, and how to send the money over and everything, um, uh, I, I'm just curious how, from your side, how you went about fundraising. You, you spoke just now about where the money went to in Myanmar among the the different people on CDMs and the and the, the the people that were involved in striking in different ways that's on the Myanmar side but on your side you have to step into a role of fundraising very likely huge amounts of money to support this shutdown as resistance to the military regime so i'm wondering if you had any history or background in fundraising and as you had to step in to try to raise this money, what, what did you do? How did you get it? How did you go about trying to raise such large amounts of money for such an important mission? Um, thank you. Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, we, I really don't um, feel like I had ever done anything organizational because, you know, I had never belonged to like any like huge organization or um uh, anything that involves a lot of people, right? Like, so yes, but I always had been a people person that I consider myself. Um, and I don't uh, hesitate usually to speak in public or, uh, you know, voice what I believe. So I guess that kind of helped. Um, so in the beginning, um, the funny thing is when I started that uh, collection of money, right, like fundraising, um, it's just that, hey, I'm collecting money to pay out or to support those CDMRs at home. If you trust me, just pay me. That's it. There is no receipt. There is no acknowledgement, not, no nothing. And I was just going by that way. Um, I mean, among the people who I knew and, you know, I had befriended already. So that's how it all started. And it was only in the tens um, of thousands only. So the tens of thousands was through that trust base only, pretty much. Only after that, uh, when we joined that CRPHOFP as the uh, official fundraisers, that's when we were um, backed by the CRPH, right? Like, so that's when a little more legitimized um, or officiated by the um, NUG and CRPH. So that's when we started um, declaring, like announcing to, at the rallies, 
telling people like, hey, we will be at this and this area, right, uh, from this time to this time frame, and we will be collecting money, and we will be um, able to give you acknowledgement from CRPH that you donated this day through us. So that's the next step. Um, so, you know, pr- like I said, pretty much it was only trust-based, like they were like give, giving me money just wherever I want to be supporting. But the second step starting by April, it, that's when we were backed by CRPH. And, you know, we were getting the donors' email addresses and the CRPH is sending the thank you notes to them. So that becomes a little more, um, I mean, you know, they have something to keep, keepsake, and they know where the money is going. Yeah. Thank you for that. And in terms of who you were fundraising from, to what degree would you say that you were being supported and having success among the diaspora? And to what degree were you able to make an impact among non-Burmese, foreigners, Westerners, or from other any other country? To what degree were people outside the diaspora who were not Burmese were also supporting and, and donating for this? Good question. You know, so what happened was, like I said, that CRPH, OFB, right? Like whatever we're talking about, it's still all Burmese, right? It's all about uh, um, Myanmar, Burla government. So it's not really uh, palatable for the non-Burmese just to go say, hey, you know, we're raising money, right? Like give give us some money. So that was not a uh, good approach. So what we did, we means uh, by that time, Kota uh, Wen and myself, we came up with this idea of having a little more wider and again to reach the non Burmese community, non Burmese friends and co workers, right? Like our colleagues. So we did um, do a, a, I don't want to say a project, I would say it's, a, mm, how should I put it? Well, it, it, it was a online um, virtual race, right? So back in 2021 to 2022, it, it was still in 21. So the um, COVID was not lifted yet. The uh, physical races, physical um, um marathons or half marathons you know those those events were not allowed yet so we were going onto this online platform to do a virtual race so it, it's called a race but it's more of a like a, a like a stepping program right so we um, had to hire a program um, to give a, out uh, a format and it was done a global basis. So we were trying to reach out to almost every uh, friends who had spread around the world to promote it and, um, you know, to sign up. So they are the participants. They signed up as the uh, raisers and they were um, logging in their steps every day, right? Like you walked 6,000 steps today or 3,000 steps today or whatnot. And for those steps, they were calling for um, their friends and colleagues to be sponsoring them, to donate for them because they're doing this for Burma. So that was a three months long program and we called it Steps for Myanmar. So S-T-E-P-S, um, with the number four, M-Y-E-N-M-A-R. So Steps for Myanmar was done for three months long from June to September, and it raised about 120K globally. And that was the most I have uh, received donation from the non-Burmese colleagues and friends. 
because you know we were doing similar to what we see here like whenever there is a uh, like a down syndrome thing or you know breast cancer awareness right so we have a lot of 5k's happening here and there so we were trying to mimic that and that that was the most we raised um for from the uh, non-Burmese community yeah Mm, right. That sounds great. So <clears throat> I think one of the things that's been very educational for many of us that are, are concerned about Myanmar is watching the worldwide support and response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think when this invasion happened, I think um, immediately within weeks, those of us who care about Myanmar were, while we were, we were, uh, uh, pleased to see the amount of support that was happening for the Ukrainian forces. There was also a little bit of like, hey, what about us? Like this has been, we've been years now asking for even just a small percentage of everything going towards Ukraine and it's and, and not seeing it. And I've had a number of conversations with different people about why this is so. Why why is there so much more support uh, for and sympathy and, and financial means for Ukraine than Myanmar? And there's a number of answers to this. One can look at the geopolitical nature of it and the threat of, of Putin and Russia and the, the proximity. The One can also just simply look at uh, Ukraine and Russia just being a bit closer to the Western mind than, than Myanmar, which is, which can be seen as quite exotic and far away and misunderstood. And there's, there's any number of reasons that one can give in looking at why there's, there, there just hasn't been that same level of support and sympathy. But the question I want to ask you is not so much looking at it as, as the perspective of the outside looking in, but rather the inside looking out. So instead of criticizing or or finding uh, reasons why the West has not uh, risen up to support Myanmar in the same way of Ukraine, which there there are certainly many. And it's, you know, every time I walk by a home with a Ukrainian flag or I go shopping and I'm told that some percentage will go to the Ukrainian democracy movement, there's always just a little bit of, of uncomfortable feeling in me of why, why nothing for Myanmar, why consistently, why nothing for Myanmar. But I don't want to look right now at that perspective of why the West is not doing more, I want to look instead and ask you instead at what has the democracy movement uh, for Myanmar, what have they, uh, what more could they have done or could they be doing to be helping themselves? So in other words, what can, for those forces that are trying to support the democracy movement, what steps are not being taken or that could be taken to find this greater outside support and sympathy? And this question is also coming on the heels of talking to several people on this podcast who have expressed concerns about how the the diaspora movement, as, as robust and active and, and, and amazing, really, and engaged as it is, how they're still kind of operating in a bubble, that they could be doing more to influence local media, local legislators to get this, uh, to, to, to make this, uh, this issue known and cared about more widely. And certainly fundraising is part of that. How more can be done to fundraise outside of this bubble of the diaspora, which has been giving so much. I mean, really, you as part of the diaspora has have been carrying the burdens on your back of trying to keep this democratic movement alive and funded. And as wonderful as that is, 
what can be done so that that burden is more shared and so that that these issues of human rights and democracy and overcoming dictatorship, that these cannot be seen as Myanmar issues, but as global universal human issues that everyone should care and should be involved with. So from your perspective as someone being involved with with fundraising and, and getting and and continually trying to get so much support from the diaspora, where do you think that greater steps could be taken, maybe should have been taken or can be taken in the future, where there could be better and more effective outreach outside the diaspora to getting support as just even even partially of what we've seen from Ukraine that would start to come greater for Myanmar? Oh, yeah, I cannot agree more than that. You know, that this topic has been um, evolving in our head since 21, right? So why? Why are we digging deeper into our own pockets? And our own buckets are not that deep enough, no matter how how much we dig into, right? So we definitely had that in our minds. Um, it's it's kind of like multifold, you know, not even like only twofold, doublefold. It's a multifold, multi faceted issue because you know, number one, our Burmese people they tend to keep things to themselves. It's it's the brought up, you know, or maybe the nurturing. You're not supposed to voice your problems to other people. That's kind of like their brought up is, right? So, you know, inside the houses, they always say that you're not supposed to put your inner wall as an outer wall, right? Meaning that you're not supposed to voice out your problems to other person out of the house. So that type of brought up um, and, you know, people who had been here are stuck with that sensation or um, sentiment. So they might be crying when they get home, but they put up this uh, happy face and nothing happening type of, um, uh, I don't know, like a, like, like, like a, like a mask, right? Like they put on and at work and at work situation, school situation, they don't talk about. They don't voice how much Burma is in deep trouble. So that's number one, right? And if they do what happened, again, you know, like you said, Burma is so exotic. People hear from you and they turn around and they forget about it. It doesn't stick to them too. So how do we make it impactful? Um, our issue, another thing is we don't have like, um, like influential or like social media status people in US or UK, right? Like, so those, um, like in Hollywood, right? Like we don't have access. I mean, Ukraine has Melakunis, right? We don't have anyone. <laughs> so something like that. Um, we don't have anyone close to Bur Burma to talk about Burma. I mean, you know, we had Michelle Yeoh who played the lady, but that's about it. You know, she talked about it a little bit, but how how many times she can go out and talk about because this is not her country. She just played the lady, right? So something like that. Um, that's one thing. And that's like the level of we, like, like you were saying, how much we try to get there, right? And again, to get to the um, news outlets. So whenever we have rallies in LA, I used to try to send emails to all the LA um um, news stations, right? It's like, you know, there, there is this link called like report something happening. So we will be sending like this Sunday, we're going to have a Burmese rally in front of Burmese embassy. But I never saw any news 
vans coming out there. So it's kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe the 2017 Rohingya issue was uh, still a big stint on Burma. Or I don't know if we were really exotic and unheard of, right? We really cannot excite people enough. Like when we did this Steps for Myanmar, we got some donation, some uh, contribution from our closest friends and colleagues. And some people who were married to number me, their family members chipped in. That's about it. We never get like any uh, philanthropy, you know, big guys, hotshots talking for us or empathizing with us. So that's that's where we are. And now that, you know, the NDA has passed uh, for 2022, right, like there are some hundreds of millions of dollars set aside, uh, that we still have to work hard to get it to where it's need to, needed to be. Because if we don't do it, they're just going to go through regular channels, right, like maybe the Red Cross, maybe the Save the Children, I don't know, maybe Doctors Without Borders, some of them, but they have to go through official channels. And that official channels means going through the capital in Yangon or uh, Nebidor, um through, you know, the, the nasty guys. They're under their watch. And I really don't believe so much can reach to all the people who are needing a lot of dire, need, dire situation. So right now we are at this point of like trying to reach to Senate level, to Congress level, um, to have some access without having official lobby. Because, uh, you know, we cannot afford the lobbies. So we are trying to do our own writing emails and making phone calls. That's where we are. Mm, thanks for that. There's really so much in your answer to explore and, and, and so much there. And thank you for your just your your, your honesty and opening up about the, the reality of the situation and not sugarcoating it, just really seeing it for what it is and, and dealing with it uh, in the form that it's taking. <clears throat> One thing that strikes me in hearing that I'm actually, as I hear you talk, the echoes of past conversations with previous podcast guests are coming back to me. Uh, I'm remembering Michael Hack speaking to me and discussing how this is someone who's been an advocate for Burma for for years, decades probably. And he has, uh, in, in previous years, he's used his connections with celebrities and actors in Hollywood, influencers, business mongols, et cetera. And in the early days of the coup, he was going all around from DC to uh, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, New York, everywhere, and simply couldn't find any support from any party. And in his telling on the interview, it uh, he felt that Aung San Suu Kyi and her, the way that she was seen to not stand up against the Rohingya genocide, which has since been declared officially a genocide by the legal term, mm -hmm. and in many ways seemed to support it, really left a feeling of betrayal and um, and, and, and bitterness and, and confusion really from someone that had been that, that so many high level figures had supported, uh, so with, uh, with such force that this had happened, they, uh, you know, these celebrities have a limited, uh, as all of us, they have a limited, uh, amount of time that they can devote to social issues and understanding and putting themselves behind it. And this, uh, the, this figure they had, this icon, they had supported so much 
falling through, just kind of the bottom fell out and and Michael wasn't able to get really any support anywhere. People just didn't want to touch it because of what happened last time. And I think this this also reveals the uh, how Burma has always been seen in, in the West as really in a reductionist, simplistic kind of term of black and white. And, and there hasn't been this greater nuance to, to, to further understand, which perhaps is, is true of any place in the world. There's only a, a limited scope of attention people have. Uh, but the other thing that comes to mind is a recent interview we did with Philip Anowit, who is a governance specialist. And it, just as you were describing this feeling inside the Burmese home that you're you're raised and conditioned to want to keep your problems to yourself and not really advertise the difficulties you're going to, he spoke of a quote spirit of sacrifice, mm-hmm. and that on, and it's fascinating. Really, he he felt that on one hand the spirit of sacrifice was noble and to be really uh, applauded, and that the entire CDM and NUG and the diaspora, the role of the diaspora, none of this could happen without the spirit of sacrifice. This is really what was propelled it and how there was this sense that uh, in in going back to the NLD and political prisoners that we need to take the ego out of this entirely and just give whatever we can with without any limits to be able to overthrow this dictatorship which is really a, a very noble thing to uh, to point out but Philip's concern was that this spirit of sacrifice was creating a vast bureaucracy that didn't have any ability to sustain itself and didn't have any, uh, it was basically a bureaucracy of, of volunteers that was uh, as noble as that was, was not trying to build solid governmental structures that would um, that would bring them more sustainability and, and, and greater infrastructure uh, with this kind of volunteerism. So I wonder, just kind of playing off of your answer, or these uh, a couple of the the points I brought up. I wonder how they resonate with you, and how how much you've also found these things to be of concern or, or issues you're working with. Oh yeah, so it's totally true that you know we. Um, I mean, all of us we came into this um, and still walking this path with the selflessness, right? Like that, you know, you, you you're um, you're doing for something greater than yourself. So that type of uh, mentality is the only driving force right now and ever. But the issue is how much it can be sustained. That's that's the issue. Because, you know, like half of our, our um, volunteers have fallen off. I mean, they don't totally quit it, but they're slowing down big time, right? So the more um, our colleagues slow down, the more leftover guys have to pick up because you know the we need more momentum right now we need i mean we need more every day not less but the working force is becoming less and less because you know people do have lives right like there are lives outside i mean look at us right like our lives outside here we have nothing to worry about i mean we're far from bullets we're far from being snatched at home right we're far from being jailed and tortured. But yet again, we are the ones, um, you know, having all this bitterness and, um, how should I put it, right? We're the ones who are burning, right? And still working so hard. But whenever we, we get to see, again, the stupid social media is always there, right? Like our um, contemporaries in bigger cities of Burma are living 
a normal life, right? Like they're going to weddings, like they're dressing up and they're having parties. We're like, what the hell, right? What is going on down there? It's like you guys are still living in the parameter of a war zone and we are on the other side of the earth. So, you know, those um, sentiments, those bitterness, these things don't help for volunteers to keep volunteering. So some volunteers on this side of uh, the world have started slowing down or started, you know, quitting or um, abandoning. So we are having harder and harder time um, doing ongoing of these processes, right? Like, so that's why we had to be switching gears the whole time, doing different things, uh, dangling different angles, God knows how long I can do too. Yeah. Mm, that's, I mean, that's really concerning and, and it's, it's nothing new for me to hear, but to put it in that kind of blunt terms, it, it really calls to attention a kind of shift from not just a practice of the last two years, but a practice of the last several decades of wanting to transition from this culture of sacrifice, of self-sacrifice, or, or, mm-hmm. or, or not to leave it behind completely because it's very noble and something that um, that is really the, the best of the human spirit, but something that also incorporates sustainability and livelihood and, um, and, and having the, the solid infrastructure. And to me, this really speaks of a difference between between good ethical values, uh, you know, wonderful noble values, and the way that one lives one one's life and and goes about one's duties, and creating a solid and stable and fair and functioning and sustainable government structure, and the they don't the, the learning experience for me in watching this is one does not necessarily lead to the other. Having good these these good uh, uh, noble values as an individual does not necessarily translate to creating a government in that model. It's kind exactly. of the, the boring, messy, unsexy work. No, of, exactly. of, and there is no satisfaction there. Because, you know, like you keep driving with the value base only and there is no reward or satisfaction that you get out of it. So that can become very tiring. So how do we make that transition? I don't know. I mean, to to be honest, it's like you really have to um, function like a racehorse, you know, wearing those little blinds on the side so that you don't you don't get distracted easily and stay focused on the path only type of thing. So mm-hmm. you know, like those distractions, those noises do happen, do come, but you know, you just have to keep focusing on your value base. Because, you know, you started with the, this value, right? Like you want to support a bigger cost than yourself. So that selflessness, like you were saying, you know, sacrifice or, I mean, I don't want, want to even call it a sacrifice because I want to quote Dong San Suji that this is not sacrifice. No one made me sacrifice anything. I chose mm-hmm. to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is my choice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't need a reward. I don't mm-hmm. need a, a, a medal for that, you know, and I don't need mm-hmm. someone telling, oh, you are doing great, right? Like, I don't need a pet on my back, but I do need to see the rewarding uh, achievements, right? I do need to see the movements, right? And I do need to see how um, larger scale involvement. When I start to see other people falling apart, like, 
the question of like, why am I still doing this, right? Like why I do need to do this and they are not doing this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Right. And it, it also, it, it, I'm reminded by some of my own experiences in the last couple of years. At one point we we did an event in a, in a city in the U.S., and flew in to do this event, and and it was a fundraiser, advocacy, um, presentation uh, involved food and showing showing some some media, et cetera. And uh, even though we weren't natives in the city, we we worked hard to develop connections at the local university and other progressive groups and networks of people that we knew and get it out in the local media and. When uh, when the event happened, which was this combination of fundraising and advocacy, I would say it was maybe about 50-50 split in terms of um, uh, Burmese, non-Burmese. If anything, it was probably a bit more non-Burmese. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we had, I had met some of the diaspora there before who ran their own fundraisers. They'd been running their own fundraisers for years. And when they came to it, they were just absolutely amazed that we were able to bring in so many non-Burmese to the cause. And when I talked about the fundraisers they were doing, which they were doing every several months and the you know, food fairs and auctions and lucky draws and everything else, it was they had really not been able to reach out to even a handful of, of, of non-Burmese who came in. And it was really tragic to me uh, to, to hear that and to see that. And it was especially tragic when I started to learn about the fundraisers they were doing. I mean, they, the, when we were in town, the fundraisers that they were putting on was, uh, and this was, you know, mind you, a year and a half in, um, Burmese women were donating their jewelry to be auctioned off, right. presumably by other Burmese, right. to, for, with all the funds to go. And when they do food fairs, these are these are Burmese who are cooking and buying all the food, probably from their own pocket, and then largely other Burmese who are then buying it. And so, it's just and as you say, you know, this uh, the, the Burmese diaspora is not known for. Um, for being in the elite class in America, despite you know perhaps uh, perhaps some percentage of them, but mostly you're talking about very hard uh, working class families, many immigrants who who are escaping uh, terrible situations themselves, exactly, yeah. and so it's just really tragic. You know, I, I don't even know what question to ask. I just felt very when I heard this, I just felt very very sad and depressed that. Uh, these groups that were so active and working so hard and so dedicated that they simply had no clue how to put on an event that would even try to bring in people from outside their community. And so it was really just this. And when this happened, I took this as as kind of anecdotal. It didn't really register. But then when we had this recent interview with Philip Anowit, and he was describing how the the entire revolution is really being carried on the broken, now the, the breaking backs of the diaspora, it put this anecdote in, in much greater context. Oh, yeah, big time. So, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you are aware, you know, like we had this um, award-winning movie called um, Myanmar Diaries. Hmm. Right, so it won in February, February of 2022. It won a Berlinale uh, Human Rights Movie Award, right? And they win um, four other awards. So there were several, I mean, they were shown in different countries and they were nominated um, eight other um, nominations. So eight nominations and five award winning. So, right, like, so it's a decent amount of um I mean, it's a. I mean, we can put this as a uh, a class of movie, right? But yet again, what happened was I'm living in Los Angeles here, right? Like this is a Tinsel town. This is where some um, Burmese people have some reach to do uh, film festivals or reach into film festivals, right? 
they did not put any effort into bringing that movie to LA. Can you believe it? I mean, you know, so mm. I, mm. As, I, as a physician, had zero clue what mm. a movie industry is like. I'm the one reaching out to Canada mm-hmm. because, you know, they had the Canada uh, Film Festival. I mean, that Canada was the closest to us, right? Like, so mm-hmm. when they get to show it there, I reach them out, um, reach out to them and asking, hey, how did you guys do it, right? So they gave me an email address, a website to contact. So I did send a, con- uh, a, a question, uh, an inquiry since April of 2022 to showcase that movie in LA. But I don't know, you know, what fell apart or, you know, just because I'm an individual, not an organization or from in film industry asking, they were not answering my calls. So I kept emailing about every couple of months. By October of this month, that's when I got connection with them. And finally, I'm going to show that movie next month. So I mean, I, you know, they, they have, by this time, they have a U.S. distributor assigned already. So, you know, by, I think, uh, December, mid-December is when they signed off to the U.S. distributor. So I don't need to deal with the Austrian people anymore. Um, you know, the time zone different is like mm. nine hours. That's crazy. Right. So I am talking to um, these guys and now I have um, fixed the facility. I'm going to show it. So I I mean, I, I don't know. It's Maybe it sounds like, you know, I'm getting uh, frustrated and tired and um, starting starting to see every other one's fault. It's like, what are those people doing with the connections mm-hmm. and abilities to do? They don't, they don't care. I don't know. They don't mind. They don't think it's necessary to showcase about Burma, right? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. I mean, if they don't want to show this much of a political film, they can think about showing uh, the other Myanmar film. I mean, mm. you know, just to keep Myanmar relevant, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. to keep Myanmar in sight, right? Mm-hmm. To to be contemporary, right? So there was this other movie called What Happened to the Wolf, right? That was by uh, Naji, um, who is in exile right now. And the... Um, Actress who won, um, I don't know what um, award she won, um, you got to forgive me. Her name is called Andrea Jawson, and she won an actress award for her role in that movie. And that is like a, a English fully titled movie. So, I mean, it is kind of like a, a good standardized, right? Like able to show, get shown to the international crowd. So the, that movie was shown at, uh, I think, Indiana or Illinois film festival, one of the film festivals, but it never made it to LA. And again, mm. we are in Tinseltown and mm. why not, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. Like Burmese don't know or don't want to stay relevant or stay, uh, be known and be in the know. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm reflecting on our two last two years of activity as well, both as a as an organization that is trying to bring advocacy and engagement as well as actual fundraising. And I think that uh, one of the things that we've tried to do or that I've tried to do, especially through this podcast platform and through the panels that we're running now, is to try to see the stories and the individuals that are happening in Myanmar that can connect with certain kind of niche crowds uh, around the world. So I think when the coup first happened, I, I was so overwhelmed by just the violence and the um, 
and the devastation that was going on, that it was really this feel of like, well, you should care about this because this is a terrible thing and society has been turned upside down and they, they need their human rights. And very soon I realized that this message was only going so far and only, only so effective in people that had their own lives. But I think what I've tried to do is to bring in people from different backgrounds that can connect with communities and causes here. So for example, uh, people coming from the world of hip hop or engaged Buddhism or uh, martial arts like Latwe or uh, cinema, poetry, um, LGBT rights, gender equality, feminism, uh, you can go on and on in, in the list. And if you, any of these things that you care about, you know, for example, if you, if you care about punk rock, if you like punk rock in the United States and what punk rock stands for, the people that the punk rockers in Myanmar, like they are on the front lines of what it means to stand up to, against injustice and oppression oh, and yeah. using their medium of punk rock to make their statement. So if you care about the, 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 kind of the anarchy and the free spirit that punk rock gives, like you should definitely care about what punk rockers are doing in Myanmar. So if maybe you don't want to be involved or educate yourself on the complex political situation and the history in Myanmar, okay, just walk through the doorway of punk rock and just care about what the punk rockers are doing. Same thing with LGBT rights, same thing with feminism, same thing with Lithuania or with poetry or whatever it is you care about. And so I think what we've tried to do, how, how we've tried to make those openings and connections and grow an audience that will then care about the wider Myanmar is to say, hey, if you care about this one issue and, and you're you're fighting for this issue in your country where you do have a relative degree of safety that, that doesn't exist there, look at how these people are carrying the same issue when the stakes are the highest and when they're literally risking their life to be able to try to stand for this cause. And so, you know, just trying to think of those creative out of the box solutions and ways where we're not just repeating the same talking points. Because one of the things I find is there is this Myanmar bubble. And uh, and that Myanmar bubble is for Burmese, diaspora, foreign allies like myself, expats who spent time there. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, there's, especially when you're in the online sphere of like Facebook or Twitter, there's this thing that I've started to call like Tamada porn, which is like, the, the military does this terrible thing and then everyone just comments, isn't this terrible? Why isn't the world paying attention? We need intervention. We need support. Mm -hmm. And it's this, this kind of ongoing spiral of arguments that don't go anywhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, as, as important as it is to have a safe space where, where Burmese can come together to, to talk about their pain and their frustration and to sympathize and have solidarity, to actually look at having things done, you, you need to move outside of that. You can keep that. It has its purpose, but you need to be able to move outside and to carry their message in a different way. And as terrible as the daily events are, going to people in foreign countries and saying, hey, this happened, it's terrible, and you should pay attention, and here's why you should know, that only goes so far. And so there needs to be these this kind of code switch you know, and code speak where you're able to go into other environments and know what the environment is. If you're going into an environment of, you know, urban youths who like, you know, listen to hip hop or skateboard or, or whatever, then, okay, well then what do you know from Myanmar you can bring to them that they can connect with? And so also if you're talking to meditators or to, you know, to, uh, to, to whatever other group. And so I think that's, um, that's at least something, that's the way that we've tried to approach it of trying to broaden the audience of people who not just give money, but also care or involved or engaged exactly. and try to see yeah. this as universal issues. Definitely. I mean, it's not only about money and contribution. It's about like, you know, again, my point here is to stay relevant, like, you know, to stay. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, how should I put it uh, to be still on the trend? Right. Because, you know, uh, 
even Ukraine is falling off the trend, to be honest, right? Because, you know, mm-hmm. US people have very short attention span to begin with, sure. right? They cannot care less for so long, right? But yet again, we need to be on the trend. We need to at least come back floating um you know, if we cannot stay afloat the whole time, we got to try to float here and there, right? So, I mean, you know, I don't know if it is the right thing to do, but I'm trying, again, this is me doing, right? Like my own way is like now that I'm going to try uh, try to um, advertise, market about this Myanmar Diaries being shown, what I am doing is I'm asking, you know, my colleagues, the younger non-Burmese colleagues who have like Instagram accounts, to put on their Instagrams. Because, you know, I mean, if I put on my Instagram or my Facebook, I mean, my, only my bubble sees, right? Like, and this my bubble knows everything already. So what's the point of reaching mm-hmm. to them over and over and over again, right? What I want is more audience. I want is more interest. If we get reached to, I don't know, 2,000 people and only like 20 shows up that day, it's still a win because that, that 20 is interested enough to show up that day. Hmm. Yes, absolutely. And that's those are the kinds of creative out of the box things that we need to think of, especially in light of just how hard it's been able to engage greater support from the masses as well as from influential people because of just the terrible timing of this, the Rohingya atrocity happening just years before. It's just, it's, right. it's so hard to break through. This just made it all the harder. Uh, I, but I do want to talk about the NDAA and the, the Burma Act passing. Do you see that as opening up or expanding opportunities for engagement of the masses and possible greater fundraising outside the diaspora as well? I find that as a a very um, promising and welcoming for um, us, right? Like, so the fundraisers. So because, you know, we do have a whole load of uh, nonprofit organizations, right? The religious organizations here already that can be acting as the actual bridgeways, right? So, you know, like I was telling you, the official uh, um, people or, or organizations who are already set, established, through Burmese government or so-called government um, are not the ones that we want to go through, right? So I see this as an opportunity for um, us, like the standalone organizations to be able to bridge in between. So I'm, we're not sure if we can channel all that allowances, but we can still manage to, if we go through proper channels, we will be able to um, bridge a whole load of help. And again, that is going to be not just double or triple. That will be a gajillion times more than digging into our own diaspora's pockets. Mm. One of the things that kind of surprised me about the discussion after the Burma Act, and I've heard this this said in, in various forums over the last couple of years, is large organizations or heads of agencies or development um, nonprofits or whatnot, uh, or mi- diplomatic missions saying that, well, we just don't know how to get the funds in on the ground. We just, we don't, we, we're, we're very unclear, uh, how we can bypass, bypass the Tamada and be able to, um, to get funds of where they're needed most. And this, I'm not sure about your, um, how involved you are in the funds you get across and the mechanisms you use, but we, we have a nonprofit as well. And for the, the funds that we've raised for humanitarian missions, 
we've identified countless ways, very trusted ways with our networks to be able to get funds in, get them on the ground, have the reporting, know what's taking place. Of course, there could be delays, there could be internet shutdowns, there could be safety precautions, but it always kind of confounds me that such a tremendously small organization as ours that has been so consistently effective at being able to find ways to adequately get them to the places they need to go and make sure that it really gets there safely and, and goes to where it needs, that big name people and organizations are are clueless. And I just don't understand what they're seeing that we're not or vice versa. So have you, have you, is this something that, that you've noticed as well or, or yeah, what? I totally agree with that. I guess, I mean, I, I, my conclusion, I'm maybe jumping too early is that they want to play safe, you know, so that's their major thing because they want to be able to officially, like literally officially be able to uh, roam around, go around, right. The whole country, and the military is always having in the way, um, like this area is out of bound. This area is not safe for you, right? Like that's why we're not allowing you to go. So that's it. That's the end of it. When they put a little roadblock there saying that this is not safe for you, the, the, the people from those big organizations, they don't move um, any further anymore. But the guys who work for yours or mine organization, they don't go through that official, so-called official channels, right? The So that's why those people are still finding a way and getting the work done, the job done. And there have been some international observers and people in the aid organizations that have made the controversial argument that the the, the need to get humanitarian uh, types of aid in is so urgent that we, this could be something that we work with the military with, that we find some way to work with the military regime to be an authorized nonprofit. So we're legal according, even though you have an illegal regime that took power in an illegal manner and is incredibly Mm -hmm. violent and breaking international norms. Somehow we're going to be within their definition of legal to be able to work with them and be also so-called my hand in air quotes, non-political so that we work with them to get the funds where they need to go and just kind of leave aside all this other messy stuff happening. So at least we get funds in through some official channel that gets to the people. So what what are your thoughts about this argument? That argument has started since 21, you know, like since that coup, right? Like the uh, regular vaccination for children under five were Mm. disrupted, right? And people with AIDS are not getting their um, antivirals. So those were, I mean, ugly consequences of all this. And when they had this, uh, uh, like a massacre and um, uh, torching, I think, Christmas of 2021, right? right. There, were, mm-hmm. there were two um, employees of Save the Children were burnt there. So that's when they don't, the, the, the big officials, big organizations, employees are not daring to venture anymore. Um, and that's why they were thinking or talking more about engaging with the regime to get that official, right? So uh, my point, I mean, that's, again, my personal point of view is I agree with do whatever you need to do, right? Like even if you need to hug and kiss the villain to get get to people behind the villain to give some helping hand, right? Or feed them a meal, you should be doing it. I totally agree with that. But the issue with current government or current uh, regimen is that 
Even if you make nice with them, it's not guaranteed you will get what you want back from them. Mm, right. Very, very, very well said and true. Yeah. Uh, you have described yourself as apolitical, and yet you're very much involved since the beginning in fundraising, advocacy, doing everything you can to try to get money for, especially for things like CDM and CRPH and NUG, which are are very much opposing the military takeover. So can you explain in, in the wider work you're doing with fundraising, in what ways do you see yourself still as apolitical? I mean, the major thing I call myself apolitical is that I really, I mean, you know, I, I adored Donald Sansuji, but I don't, uh, how should I put it? I don't see her as the sole leader because, you know, she always says that people are supposed to prepare themselves and better themselves to become leader in everyone, right? So I, I kind of, like that idea that you are supposed to be ready to lead whenever you need to, rather than putting her up there as an icon and, you know, like uh, be the puppet show. So th- I, I, that's what I think I, I'm calling myself a political in that sense that I'm not uh, uh, like an NLD supporter or, you know, like Dong San Suji supporter. I feel myself to be more like someone who wants to liberate Burma. Uh, any way I can. And the only way I can right now is by fundraising. So I think that's my explanation. Mm, right. So we've talked a little bit about the 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 dichotomy and, and distinction between the diaspora groups and then trying to break through and emerge into uh, those non-Burmese groups and get support and solidarity from them. If we then break down the diaspora, of course, Myanmar is an incredibly diverse country in terms of religion, region, ethnicity, everything else. Uh, to, looking at the diaspora population of Bamar and then of all the different ethnic groups, to what degree has the fundraising and advocacy been unified in some degree of solidarity and going in unison and coming together? And to what degree have, has this been splintered off and having Bamar groups doing this and Chin groups doing that and Karen groups doing this and so on? Um, it's still happening still happening. I mean, you know, this deep division over, what, six, seven decades, right? Like the Bama had been naive and uh, arrogant <laughs> of the whole. Mm. Um, so that perception um, is still strongly deep-seated with our um, other ethnics, right? And I don't blame them because, you know, we were as guilty as charged um too, because you know, when we were teenagers in our twenties, we did not know what's happening at the borders, at the mm-hmm. um, the states, right? Like Karen State, Kachin State, mm-hmm. how much uh, military had been going there and abusing them, right? Left and right, we had no idea. So we had been living in our own bubbles, and we had been happy, and you know, we were just getting by. Now that we know how. Bama military had been doing to them for decades in past two years. We feel ashamed about it, to be honest. Mm. You know, we were like, oh my God, right? Like we were such idiots, like did not know what's happening. L- like the people I'm blaming right now, right? Like in Bama cities yeah, mm. right now, they are partying and they are having good times when other people's houses were burned down, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we... 
when I say we, right, like me and uh, certain people that I know, right, I can speak for only people around me, are trying to close that gap as much as we can. So, you know, now is the good time, right? It's never too late to correct yourself. When you know you were not right, you start correcting yourself. So whenever we have any, like, ethnic group um, organizations, um, fundraising or activity of any kind, I try to show up. I try to be there. I want to support them. I want them to know that I stand with them. I mean, that is not to have them back showing up to anything I do. I don't, you know, expect anything in return. It's more of like, I want to be with them. I want to show them that I um, like to stand with them. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not only me, right? Me and a handful of other people all try to be there. So I kind of feel like we had a good relationship in that sense right now. And I want to keep that relationship going on. I mean, with, with or without the revolution, because, you know, this is, this is the start. This is a good start and we ha- have to keep going on. So, you know, I am grateful that you give me this opportunity to talk about. It's kind of like um, you let me lighten up my chest a little bit today. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much. Since the coup, Better Burma has provided consistent humanitarian aid to vulnerable communities across Myanmar. Over time, however, we have also come to realize that another consequence of the coup is a severely collapsed economy. Trade and tourism have almost entirely evaporated, and local artisan communities suddenly found every opportunity of continuing livelihood closed off to them. To help support those artisan communities, Better Burma now brings items direct from their workshop into your home. These lovely pieces from a far corner of the world will not only light up your room or make a lovely gift for a loved one, but they'll also help dozens of artisans create sustainable businesses and livelihoods. Part of each purchase will also go towards our ongoing nonprofit mission. To see these beautiful crafts, visit alokacrafts.com. That's aloka, A-L-O-K-A, crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Of course, as is your preference, you can also consider making a donation through our normal channels. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, refugee camps, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. 
In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh,